0: This episode of I'll Go First is brought to you by Acura, leading the way in auto innovation for over 30 years. Keep listening to discover how Acura sees things differently in the pursuit of precision crafted performance.
1: And how much do you weigh, can I ask? (laughs) Uh. Will you disclose that since we're such close friends now? Hi, I'm Takara Small, and this is I'll Go First from the Globe and Mail. This is not your average tech podcast. We're going beyond the headlines and behind the million dollar deals to chat with innovators and industry trailblazers. It's not just about what they're making, it's also about what makes them tick. I'm a journalist and an entrepreneur. I've been covering tech for almost a decade. And since launching my own startup, I've been curious about how the most successful entrepreneurs really manage those highs and lows. On this episode...
0: I'm Jordy Rose. I'm the founder of Sanctuary. We are attempting to make machines that are indistinguishable from people.
1: Every science fiction novel I've ever read has taught me to be scared of robots. Jordy isn't scared, though, of anything. He's incredibly competitive. He's an endurance runner, an elite power lifter, and a Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion. 20 years ago, he started D-Wave, the world's first quantum computing company. Now, he specializes in artificial intelligence, which is when smart machines are given data that they use to problem solve, act, and think like human beings. Jordi recently started Sanctuary AI, and their goal is to make realistic robots that can do what we do, but only better. Here's my conversation with Jordi. Okay. So, Jordy, you were shortlisted for Canada's wrestling team. You're an endurance runner. Uh, You helped launch D-Wave. You've worked at Kindred AI. Now you're revolutionizing artificial intelligence through Sanctuary AI, which begs the question, are you a synthetic person yourself?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. Although it's kind of hard to know. You know, we... uh... There's been a lot of talk about whether we're actually living in a simulation, and if we are, we're probably all kind of synthetic people.
1: Hmm, I feel like that's a roundabout way of saying nothing at all. Are you a robot?
0: Humans are kind of meat robots, we're all kind of robots. We're just a different kind of robot than the kind that we know how to build now.
1: Gotcha. Okay, so tell me a little bit about Sanctuary AI. What is it that you guys do that no one else does?
0: We're an AI company, but we're a different kind of AI company. The type of AI that we're trying to build is more true to the original vision of the founders of the field, which is try to create machines that can understand the world the same way people do. Success for us is being able to make a mind for a robot where the robot looks exactly like a person. And what that means from the outside is when you look at the robot, you can't tell it's not a human. Uh, Examples of this are like in Westworld or uh, David from Prometheus or Data from Star Trek. So we have these examples of uh, created entities that are very much like us in all the ways that matter. And what we're trying to do is make those kinds of science fiction technologies real.
1: In most of the science fiction I've read, robots and AI are used by the bad guys to do really questionable things. Hello, Terminator, anyone? Should we be worried about that?
0: Well, yes. Intelligence is an extremely powerful tool. So if you think about human intelligence and everything that it has done, the intelligence of people is sufficient to change the nature of our entire planet's ecosystem. When you ask the question, are humans all good? The answer is no. If you can create an AI that's like a person, human-like intelligence, you're going to get the, the breadth of capabilities or possibilities from the most saintly person who ever lived all the way to the most dastardly evil person who ever lived. And all of those are possible. And I think what a lot of thinkers are worried about is the possibility that AI could be pushed in both directions even more than humans can. So you could have a machine that was very intelligent, by which I mean it could accomplish a lot of different goals, but its motivation could be set to only want to accomplish certain of them. And that's both intriguing and dangerous, because you could imagine taking a machine and asking it to be rewarded for doing things that are not in the, the social good. So the original question about whether we should be worried The answer is clearly yes. AI is a technology whose power is not like anything else that human technology has ever built before. It's a general purpose tool for accomplishing goals in the world. And those goals don't necessarily have to be good. They're up to the the human programmers who are creating them.
1: Do you really think robots could create their own civilizations?
0: In principle, yes, because I don't really think there's a reason why we can't create machines like us or like any other biological creature. As long as technology keeps progressing there's no reason to assume that these machines can't be just like us there's nothing magical about the human mind it's a wonderfully complex but understandable piece of machinery and once we have understood it we can create machines just like it
1: okay and tell me a little bit about what your robots do what type of tasks can they complete
0: well right now not very much the best known robotics techniques are kind of stone age compared to what humans can do so the systems that we've got now are able to move from the neck up more or less like a person it's not perfect but it's close
1: so what's the next step then
0: the next step is to actuate them from the belly button up most of the tasks that people do in their everyday lives are actually done seated so if you have a robot that can move their upper body indistinguishably from a person, and that's very important, so they can move just like a person, you can't tell they're not a person from the waist up, then they can do any functional job that a human can do, essentially. That means that we can build machines that can do the kinds of jobs that humans do cheaper, better, and more effectively than people do. Interesting. So imagine a future where whatever you were doing before is now being done by something else that doesn't need to get paid nearly as much or even anything. Now you're free to do something else. When you think about what would I be doing if I could do anything at all, something pops into your head. That thing that you always wanted to do is worth more to human society than you doing something that should be done by a machine. The repetitive motions that you're going through when you do much of human work, there's no reason why your beautiful brain that is capable of such wonders Should be picking a thing up and putting it down over and over and over for 12 hours a day. What a waste. So, what I want is to try to figure out how we can create a world where picking things up and putting them down is done by robots. And the types of things that human minds really want to be doing is what they are doing. And I do think that the, the value to the society, the overall wealth that's generated by that is greater. Mm. I don't think that you lose in this. You know, if people are always thinking, where is my salary going to come from if I'm not being paid for what I do? Do you have to stop thinking about being a worker? The anger and resentment that you see in the United States right now, it's economic in its drivers. The reason why people are so unhappy is that they're starting to notice the fact that there's this massive bottoming up out of the middle class. And that's, the the reason is very simple, it's technology. Technology aggregates wealth in smaller and smaller numbers of hands. I don't think that's debatable. And as technology gets better, it's gonna continue to accelerate until the system breaks. And we have to have a way to deal with what happens next.
1: How would you cope if a robot took over all of your responsibilities?
0: So right now, I have what I I sometimes call an anti-job. So usually when you work, you get paid. But what I do is I actually pay my own money to everyone else in the company, and I don't take a salary. so you might ask the question, "Why am I doing that?" And the reason is I am passionately committed to figuring this problem out, and it's more important to me than money. Why is that? I guess I've had a weird life in that or or meg's my attitude towards money is is not normal, I suppose my family was always wouldn't say poor but Certainly on the lower end of middle class, my dad owned a, a hunting and fishing camp. So the, the money was uh, never guaranteed. When I went to high school in Montreal, my dad was a graduate student. He sold the business and went, went back to school. So our income was basically the stipend of a graduate student. You know, that's not very much, almost not enough to live on. So we never had any money and we never had any things you know, we didn't have a TV. You know, the first time I went out to a restaurant was probably when I was, a, you know, a teenager in high school. Really? But none of that stuff really mattered. I've always thought of money as being kind of like air. You breathe it in, you breathe it out. You don't own it. It's just something that kind of happens in the background. And there are times when you don't have a lot of air. You know, if you're at the top of Mount Everest, <laughs> you don't have a lot of oxygen around you, but you, you still make do. And the, you just turn down the uh, the burn. When there isn't a lot of it, you make different choices. I have never been in a situation where I've thought twice about money. I, I don't like it particularly. If I have it, what I usually do is either give it away or um, invest it in something that I think is worthwhile. Like the Virtually every penny I own has been put into sanctuary. Fiscally, that's not prudent. Uh, but I don't really care <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, you know it's just it's just always been the way that I've operated is I just don't really care about money. If I don't have any, uh, I'll be fine. you know I don't really even mind in some extreme case you know uh, being homeless. you know if I think if I, if I, if I lost my house, you know I just go on a hike or something. I just don't see the value in being obsessed about. Financial things—it's just—it's not the thing that makes you enjoy life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I think that the thing—the thing that makes you enjoy life—is not worrying about money and kind of its corollaries. I think I've become a little bit more Buddhist as I've gotten older. I—I I, I find like a lot of the things that the Buddhists say make a lot of sense to me. And one of them is, you have to—you have to disentangle yourself from material possessions and the and desires, and because they're the source of suffering. So I think that that part of the reason why I have this weird relationship with money is I kind of see it as a root of suffering and getting rid of it makes me feel better, (laughs) so so, yeah. Introducing the Acura Innovation Series. Throughout the next few weeks, we'll be highlighting the stories behind the innovations that defined Acura's history and inspire the next generation of precision-crafted performance. From the crafting of the original Integra to Acura's vision for the future, we'll bring to life how a unique dedication to innovation challenges them to see things differently. Visit acura.ca to discover their current lineup.
1: Right now, you're out west in BC for work, but you grew up in rural Ontario. I'm wondering what your childhood was like.
0: My parents owned a fishing and hunting camp in northern Ontario. A lot of my childhood was spent traipsing through the woods of some remote forest rather.
1: And did that somehow lead to your love for uh, being active and participating in such vigorous sports like wrestling and endurance running?
0: Uh, I don't know. I think that the, the things that really make somebody a good athlete are entirely genetic and they have nothing to do with how hard you work <laughs> or, uh, or any of that. And it's an unfortunate thing that people don't like to hear. We have this cultural belief that being good at something is because you've tried really hard and you've dedicated yourself to it and you've worked really hard and you've done all the right things and you've eaten your vitamins. I think that that's not true. I think that I'm just genetically uh, good at certain things. So not, not everything I've done at, I've been good at, but uh, certain things, I, I'm just good at them. I like sports because it's, it's, it's clear what you need to do, which is not true in life. You know, if, you, if you have a job or, or you have, you're in a relationship or you know basically anything at all that has to do with your day-to-day, it's not clear what it means to be good at it or to win uh, or to even get better. Uh, but sports are different. In sports, there's this number that's associated with how good you are. And all you have to do is make that number better. And you can usually figure out how to do that. It's kind of like this thing that that drives video game addiction. The reason why video games are better than real life in some ways is that you you know exactly what you have to do to get a reward and you get a reward every time you do it.
1: And what is the one thing that helps you de-stress? You're incredibly busy.
0: Right now, the de-stressing for me or handling uncertainties of my job and my life is in another one of these niche sports that I like called powerlifting. So powerlifting is is a competitive form of weightlifting in that where you do three different lifts, bench press, squat, and deadlift, and your total, which is the sum of how much you can lift in those three things, is the number you're trying to increase. So uh, I have a gym in my basement, and I do this uh, religiously because I'm addicted to the numbers going up thing. It's uh, something that just captures my imagination. I'm always thinking about it, like how can I get that number up by another five, It is a way to take your mind off the things that are kind of more serious in your life. A basic thing about increasing a number.
1: So you're looking towards a possible future where workers don't have to do menial jobs like picking things up and putting them down. But in your spare time, your hobby is powerlifting. Which is essentially picking things up and putting them down.
0: Yeah, but I don't have to. <laughs> that's the difference. So, in in uh, in my previous job, I was the CEO of Kindred, and Kindred makes robots that uh, work in e-commerce distribution centers, which are these giant million-square-foot warehouses that Amazon and the Gap and Target and others have. Where is very basically every product that's ever been built by by humans is in that warehouse somewhere. And the the thing that our machine did is it reached into a bin, pulled out a thing, barcode scanned it, and put it in a cubby. And the people who were doing that job were literally standing in the same place 12 hours a day, doing nothing but reaching into a bin, pulling a thing out, barcode scanning it, and putting it into a cubby. That's all they did for hours and hours and hours. They couldn't take breaks. The warehouses were not um, heated or cooled. Uh, one of the ones that we were in, it was in Tennessee in the summer. It was 40 degrees plus like for weeks, just terrible, terrible places that humans should never, it's a job that humans should never have to do because there's no other option. You need to do it or else you can't eat. That's terrible and should be eliminated. Now for me doing the weight stuff, yes, it's a repetitive thing where you put pick things up and put them down, but I'm choosing to do it. <laughs> That's the big difference.
1: So now we're going to get into the rapid fire. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. I don't want you to think too much about it. Just give me one word responses. Are you ready? Yes. We'll treat this like a game. Okay, here we go. What's your greatest fear? Spiders. What do you do for fun? Lift weights. What motivates you? Fear. What's your perfect day off?
0: I don't take days off.
1: What's one word that your friends would use to describe you? Crazy. What's your favorite sci-fi TV show or film? AI. How many hours do you sleep a night? About 10. Interesting. Okay, 10 hours because I've been reading Steve Jobs' biography. Please don't judge me for saying that. He very rarely slept. And I'm thinking, how could you be possibly um, at your peak performance if you're not sleeping a regular amount?
0: Uh, not sleeping is a plague of the modern world. Sleep is necessary for all sorts of different reasons. I think that the, the main reason why people can't deal with stress is lack of sleep. It's not because their lives are stressful, it's because they're not recovering. And when you do uh, athletics at a high level, you start to realize very quickly that the one thing that kills you is, is not sleeping. If you don't sleep enough, everything falls apart. And I, I, I just don't believe that uh, sleeping less and doing more in a day actually helps you over the long run. I think that you need to find a way to sleep so much that you when you wake up, you feel like you couldn't have slept anymore.
1: to what I call the big three. I'm gonna ask you three big personal questions. First one, you're the first in your field to do what you're doing. What's one big mistake that helped define your career?
0: Not understanding that money is the thing that drives everything in a business.
1: Ooh, please explain. What do you mean?
0: So if you have a a mission-driven business, like I always have, the three companies I've been involved in, D-Wave, Kindred, and Sanctuary, were all founded to accomplish what's essentially a scientific objective. They weren't founded to make money. As soon as money enters into the picture, all of the attention and focus goes to increasing the amount of money you're making, and it draws you away from the original reason you started the organization to begin with. The biggest mistake that I've made in my career is not understanding that and keeping the, the mission pure. So if you start a company to do something, do that thing. And if you have the opportunity to make a lot of money doing something else, that's fine, but it doesn't belong in the organization that you started.
1: And what piece of advice would you tell your younger self?
0: Don't be afraid to say what you want.
1: Okay, so we're gonna wrap up now. The last question is if you could do it all again, what would you do differently when it came to your career?
0: Not a single thing. I'm happy with all the decisions that we've made. There have been ups and downs and not everything has worked out the way that I'd hoped, but uh, I wouldn't change a thing.
1: Thanks to Jordi Rose for sharing his story. Now it's your turn. We want to hear your story. Make sure to hit me up online. I'm at Takara Small on Twitter, or you can email the show at podcasts at globeandmail.com. I'll Go First is a Vocal Fry Studios production. It's executive produced by Kieran Rana and Katrina Bolak with editorial assistance from David Michaels. For more stories of entrepreneurship, visit theglobeandmail.com. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you guys next week.